Hey everybody, Sean King here. I'm on sabbatical, so we're rerunning some of our favorite episodes of The Breakdown and other North Star podcasts. I hope you enjoy them, and I'll see you again in August with brand new content. The, the, the Breakdown. The, 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 the Breakdown. I don't know that any single figure or person in history, outside of my own family, of course, has shaped me more than Malcolm X. And it's in great part because of when he first reached me in life. When I was 15 years old, uh, all the way back in 1995, 25 years ago, it's getting farther and farther away. When I was 15 years old, I was brutally assaulted by a group of racist white students at my high school. And I had fractures in my face and fractures in my ribs. And I had uh, a very badly injured spine and lower back. I had three spinal surgeries. And I missed the rest of my sophomore year and all of my junior year of high school recovering from those injuries and surgeries. I, I saw a counselor who diagnosed me with PTSD. And I, mean, I was in a horrible, low place. And I don't remember who bought me or brought me the autobiography of Malcolm X when I was recovering from those surgeries, but it was really the first historical autobiography that I ever read. And it was the first book that I read multiple times. And I related, I not only related to Malcolm, but I identified with him because I saw how low his life had gotten, how much he had endured, finding himself in jail and, and in prison, and that he was going to have to scratch and claw his way out. And I found myself in this horrible low place where I was, I, I was definitely depressed. I wasn't suicidal, but I definitely didn't want to live anymore. And I was... I was done with life in so many ways. And I found this transformation story of a man whose life completely fell apart, but who recovered from it. And from that point on, from the age of 15 until today, I have found deep inspiration, not just in the story of Malcolm X, but in his words, in his courage, in his example, um, I, you know, I didn't grow up with a father, and like many of you who also didn't have a father figure at home, I always found myself kind of grasping at straws for what it meant to be a man, to be a leader, and so much of that I got not only from the autobiography of Malcolm X, but I started purchasing any book about him, on him. I started watching any documentary, any clip, any speech, and for the first few years of my life as a young leader, when I was 17, 18, 19, um, a, a young preacher, a young leader on the campus of Morehouse in Atlanta in the late 90s, which was during the horrible police shooting of Amadou Diallo, during the lynching of a young man named James Byrd, during the, the, the height of the so-called war on drugs, I, I modeled and patterned my my speeches and my style after Malcolm. And uh, today I want to play several clips that over the past few years 
I have leaned on. And in some ways, they each frustrate me because they are way more relevant today than they should be. Like we should be looking at these words from 1963, 1964 and saying, damn, it was crazy back then. But every word he says here is as relevant today as it was when he first said them. This first clip that I'm going to play for you is probably, it could very well be my favorite clip of Malcolm altogether. I'm going to try to post the video. I have a super busy day today. I'm going to try to post the video, but he has a sly grin when he is speaking to a journalist who asks him, Hey, Malcolm, are we making progress in society on race and racism? And he flashes a big smile and he gives this answer. And at the very end, he starts smiling again. And I think he was tickled even with his own wittiness. But let me play the clip. You feel, however, that uh, that we're making progress in, in this country? No, and no, no, no. I will never say that progress is being made. If you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there's no progress. Mm-hmm. You pull it all the way out, that's not progress. The progress is healing the wound that the blow, that the blow made. And they haven't even begun to pull a knife out, much less try and pull, uh, heal the wound. You have, have, you have they won't even admit the knife is there. It's true. It's painfully true today that we're often asked, like, hey, are we making progress? And it's like, listen, putting the knife in us nine inches and pulling it out six inches, that's not progress. And then he goes on to say, it's like, you won't even admit the knife is there. (laughs) And that's the struggle we have today. Like, we are regularly struggling to convince people that white supremacy is there, that racism is there. But in this next clip, I... I have gone back to watch this clip maybe a hundred times. He's giving a speech, and it's over 50 years ago. But he's giving a speech about police brutality and how police will beat and batter us in the black community, but then find a way to blame it on us. But then he also goes in and talks about the criminalization of black people in the media and in other ways. And it's a painfully, painfully relevant clip. It's um, it's something that I share almost every year, sometimes multiple times a year. And it's just shocking that this is 50 years old and he literally could have, he could have said it this morning. It's, it's as relevant for what we see going on with Breonna Taylor and so many other cases of police violence. But just listen to it and uh, listen to how fierce he is, how honest he is. Nobody in the 60s was speaking as fiercely about police brutality as Brother Malcolm. Listen to this. The The controlled press, the white press, inflames the white public against Negroes. The police are able to use it to paint the Negro community as a criminal element. The police are able to use the press to make the white public think that 90% or 99% of the Negroes in the Negro community are criminals. And once the white public is convinced that most of the Negro community is a criminal element, 
then this automatically paves the way for the police to move into the Negro community exercising Gestapo tactics, stopping any black man who is in the, on, on the sidewalk, whether he is guilty or whether he is innocent, whether he is well-dressed or whether he is poorly dressed, whether he is educated or whether he is dumb, whether he's a Christian or whether he's a Muslim, as long as he is black and a member of the Negro community, the white public thinks that the white policeman is justified in going in there and trampling on that man's civil rights and on that man's human rights. Once the police have convinced the white public that the so-called Negro community is a criminal element, they can go in and question, brutalize, murder, unarmed, innocent Negroes, and the white public is gullible enough to back them up. This makes the Negro community a police state. This makes the Negro neighborhood a police state. It's the, it's the most heavily patrolled. It has more police in it than any other neighborhood, yet it has more crime in it than any other neighborhood. How can you have more cops and more crime? Why? It shows you that the cops must be in cahoots with the criminals. I, I, I love that speech. And it was like medicine for the crowd because you have to understand there was no social media. There weren't there weren't viral speeches and viral videos and viral clips. And Malcolm is speaking to an audience about police brutality and and the criminalization of black people in a way with a boldness and a courage in a way that folk had never heard before. And you should see the pride in the audience as they soak up and enjoy the courageous words of Malcolm X. This next one is one that they kind of use in the, the Spike Lee movie, Malcolm X or X. And um, Malcolm is asking the question. He's speaking again to an all black audience and he's asking the question, who taught you to hate yourself? Who taught you that? Where did that come from? And I love this one so much. It, it, this one probably summarizes the appeal of Malcolm in the 60s, a hundred years after slavery as we knew it ended through the Civil War and the, the so-called Emancipation Proclamation and 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. A hundred years later, black folk were still struggling in, 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 in major ways, but Malcolm is getting to something that black folk had control over which was identity and self-esteem. And he asked the question, who taught you to hate yourself? Let me play the clip for you. Who taught you, please, who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin to such extent that you bleach to get like the white man? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips? Who taught you to hate yourself from the top of your head to the soles of your feet? Who taught you to hate your own kind? Who taught you to hate the race that you belong to? So much so that you don't want to be around each other. You know 
before you come asking Mr. Muhammad, does he teach hate? You should ask who yourself, who taught you to hate being what God gave you. to the root of how we can't just focus on just on the external pressures but we have to do things that boost the morale and courage and self-esteem of our people and and in that speech Malcolm was just trying to say listen you are beautiful and i need you to understand that the that the self-esteem and self-imagery that we sometimes have it came from somewhere else, and you need to think highly of yourself and of our people. This final clip is just a short clip, um, just a little over a minute long, where where Malcolm leans in on how police will assault black folk, but then charge them with assault. And I'm literally working on multiple cases right now of that very thing where in in New York and all over the country where police assault people then charge them charge their own victims with assault and here we are this is this speech is over 50 years old and the very practice that Malcolm is exposing in this moment 
we see today in 2020. I'm working on multiple cases of this very thing. Let me play the clip and then we'll close. Don't scare Negroes today with no badge or no white skin or no white sheet or no white anything else. The police the same way. They put their club upside your head and then turn around and accuse you of attacking them. Every case of police brutality against a Negro follows the same pattern. They attack you, bust you all upside your mouth, and then take you to court and charge you with assault. What kind of democracy is that? What kind of uh, freedom is that? What kind of social or political system is it when a black man has no voice in court? has no nothing on his side other than what the white man chooses to give him. My brothers and sisters, we have to put a stop to this. And it will never be stopped until we stop it ourselves. They attack the victim. And then the criminal who attacked the victim accuses the victim of attacking him. This is American justice. This is American democracy. And those of you who are familiar with it know that in America, democracy is hypocrisy. Now, if I'm wrong, put me in jail. That's why I said all of these clips are powerful but painful because they are each as relevant and as necessary today as they were 50 and 55 years ago when he first said them. Listen, I've got to run. We are working so hard in our fight for justice for Ahmaud Aubrey, for Breonna Taylor, for the young brother Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Ross Jr., and in so many other cases, and I've got to get to work on those cases. I love and appreciate each of you. Thank you so much, not only for your support of me, but for your support of these families that we're fighting for. Take care, everybody. Break it down. Break the 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 break